Please rise for the reading of God's word today from Matthew, the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 13 through verse 18. Hear now God's word. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. With the beginning of the Lenten season last week, we begun our calendar run up to the crucifixion and to Easter. Jesus had taught his disciples many things during his short time with them, but it was clear that their understanding was still lacking. Nevertheless, they were starting to suspect that there was far more to Jesus than they had first imagined. That's true with most people, but it was especially true uh, in this situation. Like any good teacher, Jesus tested his students to see if the lessons that he was teaching were being learned. Just a few verses after the verses we just read, Jesus began preparing his disciples for what was coming. He said, or the text says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In this, these two short passages, we see a, a lot about Peter, right? I see a lot of myself there. Pretty impulsive, ready to proclaim the truth about who Jesus is, but ready to argue with Jesus about Jesus being Lord and being having a, a definite purpose and plan and mission. Like us, Peter wanted to control the story. He had something quite different in mind for how this story of Jesus should end. But Jesus let Peter know that God was writing the story and not him. And of course, that is a lesson we all must learn. And so today I want to address uh, what the title of the sermon raises, and that is the most important question. The first and most fundamental question that must be asked and answered by every person as it pertains to the Christian faith, arguably the most important question, period, is the one that Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? 
So this is a question that each of us must answer, not in a shallow or superficial way, but rather we should respond to it after we've given it some really deep consideration and thought. Because so much rides on our answer, and the implications are great. But Jesus, the things that Jesus taught are either the words of life, or they are offensive. 1 John 1, 1 1-4, That which was from the beginning, uh, which we have heard, this is John speaking, one of the apostles, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life that was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy might be full. Simply put, Jesus is either the cornerstone or else he is a stumbling block. There is Jesus as he declares himself to be, and then there is the Jesus that men want him to be. The world has been trying to reinvent Jesus, to remake him into some other image, some other character for a long time. But if you call a duck a dog, that doesn't make it a dog. Many of us want just enough Jesus to get us to heaven. A little fire insurance but not so much that he can actually place demands on us or upon the world. In other words, I would like to have a Savior, but I really don't want a Lord. We want the precious moments version of Jesus because there's no threat. But the Jesus on the white horse in the book of Revelation, now that is another story. The mythical, soft Even effeminate version of Jesus is welcomed. But certainly not the Jesus that makes exclusive claims upon us and others. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, Patty Griffin, has a line in one of her songs that many of us can imagine or picture. Uh, She's in the middle of the song. She says, Jesus stares at me in my chair with his big blue eyes and his honey brown hair. And he's looking at me way up there on the wall. She was talking about being at home, at the home she grew up in. There was this picture of Jesus. And some of you know that famous picture, uh, the, the, the honey brown hair and the blue eyes. And that's the Jesus many of us imagine. Well, that old picture of Jesus, you see, is safe. But the real Jesus is anything but safe. It used to be in this country that Jesus was welcome to have a place at the public table, but he certainly was never really welcome to be at the head of the table, and now it appears he's not welcomed at the table at all. C.S. Lewis captures this so succinctly when he set forth what has come to be be known as Lewis's trilemma. Uh, Jesus is either Lord or he is a lunatic or a liar. 
Those are the options. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would, be, he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Consider the kind of claims that Jesus made about himself. These are personal and exclusive claims about who he was, and not just some general teaching about life. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. In addition, there were many so-called hard sayings of Jesus that gave people pause, and many who first considered following, following him changed their minds and followed him no more. Deny yourself, he says. Take up your cross. Hate your family. Forsake your possessions. Give all to the poor, turn from idols, and much more. And perhaps one of the most outlandish and offensive claims he made was his assertion of exclusivity. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now Matthew 16 is one of the earliest places in the New Testament in which we find the mention of the church. Jesus says in verse 18, on this rock, I will build my church. This is the very foundation of the church. That, that is, excuse me, the very foundation of the church is the profession and proclamation that Jesus was in fact the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the foundation. It's very significant that our Lord should connect the church with a right idea of himself. A different Jesus, a counterfeit Jesus, a modified Jesus is not the Christ, the Son of the living God. In our text, we have the test question, which must be put to everyone who is to be admitted into the assembly of the Lord. Who do you say that I am? The first question to be put to anyone. You can't be right in the other matters unless you get things right about him. There are people who can give the needed answers to the questions because they know what answers are required. But Jesus is really requiring a different kind of answer to that question. Not the dictionary answer. In asking the question about himself, our Lord made a distinction between two classes of people. 
He inquired, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, there were many answers then, and there are many answers now. But there can only be one true answer. What conclusion did they arrive at while guided by flesh and blood? Well, these conclusions were varied. Some said John the Baptist, some said Elijah, others said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jehovah is God alone and he's not going to allow any rivals. And truth is necessarily intolerant of error. And so as it was then, we still have today many opinions about Jesus. And they agree in this. They contradict the one and only truth. Today some say he's a good man. Others say no, he can't be good because he deceives people. Some say he's divine, though he's not actually God. Others that he has become God, though he wasn't always God. Some agree that some of his teachings were admirable for the occasion on which he delivered them, but now they've become old-fashioned and out of date. Others ridicule his teaching as altogether impractical and even evil. So the judgments of men recorded in this text at least are respectful to our Lord Jesus. There are plenty of people, though less and less, who want to cling to a watered-down version of Jesus for a variety of reasons. It's not unusual for someone to speak very respectfully of him if there can be any respectfulness in words which fall short of affirming his Godhead. They want to pick and choose from his words but deny his blood sacrifice as some kind of superstition They deny his miracles while they applaud some of his principles. But one thing is clear, they don't want anything to do with the doctrine of the cross. In our text, not one of the conjectures of men is correct about Jesus. Jesus wasn't John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And certainly he wasn't, as some of the Pharisees had claimed, an agent of Beelzebub. Men didn't know who or what Jesus was. They neither knew him nor his father. Jesus is to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So if you know no more of Christ than what the world knows then the academics and scholars know, then the philosophers know, then you have not yet found the blessing. If you know no more than that. If you know no more of Jesus than flesh and blood is revealed to you, then it has brought you no more blessing than the conjectures of their age brought to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who remained an adulterous and unbelieving generation. But now there was a handful of people in the world in the Savior's day who were known as his disciples. And to them, these are the ones that he first put the question to, who do you say that I am? And it'll take a humble, teachable person to see the truth about Jesus. And so I asked this morning, to which group do you belong? Now, I could presume, everyone here, uh, has been baptized and is a professing Christian, and I take that probably you know, most likely to be the case. 
But again, it's entirely possible for that to be superficial and to not be what Jesus is requiring here. And so the scriptures tell us it's always good to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. You, you belong to those who are proud of their intellectual, of their intellect and guided by flesh and blood. Or are you one of his disciples who is taught by the Father? So I want to turn out now for the rest of this sermon to four necessary kinds of knowledge of Jesus, just as a, a handle, if you will, to be able to do this evaluation. So first, we must have a knowledge that is different from that of the world. It's far more serious, a far more thoughtful knowledge, far more personal. The men of the world say, we're not sure who Jesus is. And in some cases, they say, and we don't particularly care. Herod came to the hasty conclusion that John the Baptist had risen from the dead when he saw Jesus. Others said it was very likely Elijah who was to appear before the coming of the Messiah. And a third group, hearing his sorrows, thought that he might be Jeremiah having come back to life or that he might again be one of the other prophets. It didn't really matter which one. There's something about Jesus that he reminds us of one of the Old Testament prophets, the way he speaks, what we've read about in Scripture. But when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter spoke first accurately saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The answer Peter offered was one that he had given a lot of thought to, apparently, since he considered the subject to be of the highest importance. And so I pass on Jesus' question to each of you. Who do you say Jesus is? Is his name a weighty matter with you? Do you see that your view of him is the test of your condition? Is he or isn't he God? Is he the Lord? Have you taken him to be your all in all? I always like to, as we think about this, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? That means he owns you. You belong to him. That's, that's how he can save you. You're his. You're in his hands. That's how he becomes savior. If he's not Lord, then he's, you're out here doing it on your own. And that's not what's, What's necessary here, it's essential to see him for who he is. And if we do, that's going to change everything. Personally, for yourself, have you done this and done it with care and deliberation? Well, if you have, then you're what a disciple should be. They knew enough to say for certain, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior, the Son of the living God. Do you know that as well? Allow me to zoom in on this a bit. Do you believe in Jesus by an inward discernment of him? Is he to you clearly and distinctly the Son of Man and the Son of God? Is he to you definitely your Savior whom God has set forth to be the propitiation for your sins? Is he your substitute and sacrifice? Now be certain of what you do know concerning Jesus. Have no second-hand information, no hypothesis, no inference. 
but say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A true disciple's knowledge then differs from the common light knowledge of men in that it is definite, clear, and assured. This knowledge of the disciples was unanimous. Outside the circle of Jesus was a dozen things. Inside the circle there was only one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is that settled for you? Those who are really taught of the Father believe one doctrine concerning Jesus. We recite it in our confession each week in the Nicene Creed. We'll do it in a few minutes. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Furthermore, the true disciples' knowledge of Christ differs from that of men in that it's permanent. The verdict of men concerning Jesus is changeable. Christ is sometimes up in the market and sometimes down in the market, but in reality, he's not in the market at all. He can neither be bought or sold. True believers always have the same idea about Christ. They grow in the extent of their knowledge, but they grow in the, and they grow in the depth of their conviction. But when they begin with him, he is the son of the living God to them. And when they know him best, he is still the Christ, the son of the living God. Once more, the knowledge which disciples have of Christ differs from that of the world in that it is power, powerfully influential. The world is not influenced by believing that Jesus is John the Baptist. But the world, excuse me, but we are greatly influenced by believing that he is the Son of God. This takes possession of our hearts, our heads, our eyes, our hands, our feet, our body, our soul, our spirit, our marriage, our children, our money, everything. This Son of God is Lord over us, and He sits supreme upon the throne of our hearts, and our lives show that He rules and governs our thoughts. Second, we must have a knowledge of Christ that is received in a special way. What did did Jesus say to Peter? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He tells us in this text that if we truly know him, then we haven't learned it by ordinary means. I think we have sometimes come to miss this vital point. Ours is a supernatural faith. To truly know Jesus means that God himself has intervened in our lives. Does he use means? Of course he does. The preaching of the word, the testimony of others, all kinds of means he uses, but Peter had heard others speak, but he didn't know Jesus as the Christ until the Father revealed him. Paul tells us concerning the gospel that he neither received it of man, nor was he taught it, but he received it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so God, again, certainly uses other people to teach us, but all the prophets and apostles couldn't teach us Christ if the Father didn't reveal the Son in us personally. 
as Peter would later write in Second Peter. And so we have the prophetic and confirmed word which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so the Father who sent Jesus to us must also make Jesus known to each one of us, or else we will remain ignorant of him. And so Peter came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Son of the living God because the Father in heaven made him to see and know that that was true. The genuine disciples of Christ come not through flesh and blood, but by the Spirit who is sent of the Father. And so you can never know the Father until you become a son. A spiritual faculty has to be created in us by which we are enabled to perceive the Son of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and nothing more. And flesh cannot discern spiritual things. Third, there must be knowledge that has its own particular marks. How do we know? What are we looking for? First, it comes with an infallible certainty to the heart. There is a mystical dimension to this. The Lord must deal with you. His spirit must come into contact with your spirit. There must be an inward illumination by the Holy Spirit or else you will never truly be blessed. It was only what Peter knew. It was not only what Peter knew, but the way in which he came to know it which made Peter blessed. Truth thus revealed comes with a force far transcending arguments of pure reason. Second, when the Father reveals Christ to a person, he at the same time reveals the person to himself. In other words, we get to know something about ourselves when the light comes on, if you will, when we encounter Christ We are moved to desire holiness and we long to be like Christ. And that is the evidence, the true fruit of knowing Jesus. If you have Christ, then you'll have a desire to be like Christ. You cannot know him and not want to be like him. Third, there also comes with this revelation a remarkable peace. Come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in your soul from the Father himself And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind. We read in the Gospels that after the Lord had spoken to the winds and the waves, there was great calm. And it wasn't only a calm, but a great calm. And fourth, there's one more mark about this knowledge that is the glory, that is that the glory of Christ abides forever. The person who has obtained his religion from other people might have it taken away by other people. But he who has received it from the Father, the Father holds it and it can't be broken. That which we have learned from the Father will never be unlearned. Nothing can erase what the Holy Spirit has engraved. For he himself says, no man can come unto me except the Father who has sent me draws him. And so the Spirit must take of the things of Christ and show them to us, or we will never receive them. 1 Corinthians 2, for the things, these things we also speak, 
not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And then fourth, knowledge that secures certain blessings to its possessor. This is the other and final essential thing unique about this kind of knowledge. Jesus replied to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter was blessed first because he now had eternal life. How do we know? Our Savior said, This is life eternal, that they might know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The knowledge of him is eternal life. You know about certain historical figures based on your scholarship, but you don't know them as living persons. They're dead. They're gone. But with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only know a great deal about him, you can actually know him. This kind of knowledge is revealed to us by the Father. Flesh and blood cannot make us friends of Christ. So the apostle... Apostles knew Christ physically, yet it wasn't the cause of their blessing, but rather the Father gave them a knowledge which brought eternal life with it. The world doesn't know Christ. It can't know him of itself. John 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. It's to his chosen that he reveals himself. To his chosen, he comes and speaks with them as friend with friend. He takes them aside and he looks at their hearts and he listens to their sorrows. And in return, he opens his heart and he says to each one of them, I love you with an everlasting love. If you know Christ, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you're in the family register of heaven and you shall be with him where he is. In every condition, you are blessed. If you're ill, you're being blessed. If you're prospering in the world, if you know Christ, your prosperity is blessed. Peter knew how to answer this most important question. He knew and confessed the Lord's Christ as the Son of the living God. And he wasn't only blessed himself, but he was chosen to be one of the first stones of the church whose foundation course was then being laid. A person must have a fulcrum, a fixed point, or else his lever is useless. And everything, if everything is uncertain to you, One thing alone is certain, namely that you had better let the matter alone until you have found something for certain. If you have no foundation for yourself, you cannot build others. Therefore, do first and foremost cry out to God, Lord, reveal your Son in me.
Now you've heard me say over and over, and I'll just conclude with this. Jesus does this frequently in Scripture. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. He is either who he says he is or he's not. There's no gray area here. Get on one side of that equation or the other. If you're on the side of the equation where you say, I don't know, I'm not sure, I think Jesus is something less than God, then go all in. Because this is it. When this life's over, you're done. Well, that's not what the scriptures say. We think there's something else to come. But from your point of view, if there is no God and there is no Christ, who is God, then this is it. But if he is who he says he is, then every single moment of your life, whether we call it good or bad or pleasant or unpleasant, it has meaning and purpose, and he is right in the middle of it, ruling over it for your good. So I urge all of you as we approach Easter, as we approach the grand celebration And I'll remind you, by the way, in in the Lenten season, which is a time of reflection upon the trip to the cross, that Sundays are reserved in the Lenten season on the church calendar. They don't count for the 40 days of Lent. Because Sundays are always feast days and always resurrection celebrations. So here in the middle of Lent, once a week we stop and say, all right, we'll set that aside today. We celebrate the victory of Jesus. Today we feast. Now, Monday, we'll go back to reflection upon uh, our sins and upon what Christ did for us and the trip to the cross. And then next Sunday, we'll come back, take a pause in Lent and celebrate again because we can't not celebrate this central truth. But I want to urge you as we approach this Easter... Last year, because of the COVID situation, we had to cancel our feast and celebration with a lot of uncertainty. But this year, we're planning to make it even bigger and better. And the best way to make it bigger and better is to have your heart right where it needs to be here, committed to him with your whole life and with your whole heart. Let's pray. Father. You are, the, you are the giver of Christ. And so we ask that you shine in our heart that we may see your unspeakable gift. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to know who and what Jesus is, that we may accept him as you have proposed him to us. You did give him out of your bosom. Give him into ours. Enable us to speak of him as one whose glory we have beheld, whose power we have felt. For indeed, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. We don't get to invent Jesus and remake him and and pick out the parts that we like or don't like. Jesus is his own interpreter. He gets to tell us who he is. He is the door, but he is also the key. He is to be seen, but he supplies the light in which he is to be seen. Jesus came forth from God, and the power to know Jesus also comes forth from God, so that all comes from God, and unto God let us return it.
When salvation is 100% God, when it is clear that I contribute nothing, then all the glory goes to God and none of it goes to me. The only appropriate, indeed the only possible response is gratitude for so great a salvation. We love him because he first loved us. In an anonymous hymn written in 1878, this idea is clearly captured in these lyrics. You know the song. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. I was not, it was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. I find, I walk, I love, but, oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. Almighty God, who spoke to the prophets that they might make your will and purpose known, bless your church, the pillar and ground of the truth, the guardian of your word. Conform our minds to yours. May our lips speak your truth. Take our hearts and kindle them with love for you. Manifest that same love in us as we love one another. Grant us, Lord, that from the written word and by our spoken word, men and women may come to see the incarnate word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Bless now our feasting and our resting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen.